The rainstorms that hammered Vermont in July, causing widespread flooding in certain towns, reminded many residents of Tropical Storm Irene, which occurred 12 years ago in August of 2011. In some cases, building back meant building back with more resiliency, such as widening culverts or strengthening bridges and roadways in flood-prone areas. Now that a storm described as a once-in-a-century event saw something of a replay only 12 years later, many of the same questions are being asked again. Should we build back to what was, or build back better, with more resiliency, but also at greater expense? We spoke with three local town managers or administrators to get their takeaways and what were the lessons learned from the storms of July 9 and 10, and what should be the response going forward if storms like these may become more frequent. We started with Nick Zayas, the town administrator of Arlington. There, there's absolutely lessons to be taken from these storms in with regard to resilience. Every town needs to be thinking about its hazards for, for its own planning purposes. And, but, it need, but it has only so many levers that it can act on on these. Uh, margins. The first and, and foremost is going to be your, in your zoning law. Within that zoning law has uh, typically flood chapters that explain what can and cannot be done in the floodplain and the floodway. They, those two areas that are, are hazardous, but hazardous and then much more hazardous. Arlington's brand new zoning law that, that is in the process of uh, being vetted and and with its public meetings in the, in the next month or so, has, has some changes in the flood protections that, that limit in certain ways what can be placed into those vulnerable areas. So every town has that lever where they can choose and go beyond the bare minimum with what can be done by in, with the built environment in your town. So our rules highly restrict uh, structures in the floodway, for instance, those that are most vulnerable to being washed downstream. It also puts limits on, on certain types of development in the floodplain that may be hazardous to, to downstream neighbors. Uh, it may, and importantly, that does not require outlay in cash up front, but what it does do is it limits your long-term potential for housing growth, for for development in general, and for, for people using their the lands that they have in either ways that they've been accustomed in the past, or new, using them in new and interesting and, and, and uh, positive ways for your community. So towns in some cases are going beyond what the state minimum law is. What Arlington does not do with its law is implement so-called river corridors um, uh, regulations, which further restrict and add an extra degree of regulation in this space to, to make further structures not available in new areas of the town that may be vulnerable to river flooding, but, but are uh, vulnerable in different ways to other types of water, of moving water uh, hazards. Then we traveled up to Londonderry, the scene of some of the worst flooding in our local area. There, we met up with Shane O'Keefe, Londonderry's town administrator. Yes, we should, and in some cases we have. We have some situations where smaller culverts have washed out, 
and so we've replaced a 15 inch culvert say with an 18 inch which does meet the town and the state requirements uh, so we are um, building back um, with greater resiliency in some cases we also found out and actually today that um, some of our other projects so for example the uh, cobble ridge road bridge that's a bridge that got um, largely destroyed uh, during Irene, and it was destroyed once again. Uh, we know it's too narrow, but in order to build that back to standard, which would be a 66-foot bridge, we need a whole new bridge. You know, that's two and a half million dollars estimate. Um, while we can fix that for only uh, roughly 250,000, we're thinking. So this, the they're not going the we're not gonna get funding to build the larger bridge. Um, the uh, FEMA would give us enough money to, um, you know, they would give us enough money to bring it, to restore it, and if we wanted to go beyond that, that would be on our dime. So there is a limit, I, I'm led to believe, of 50% of the, um, the normal um, cost of replacement uh, back to what it was. Anything more than that, you're on your own. Uh, speaking about town resources, town roads, bridges, whatnot, uh, dams, um, it really was widespread. Uh, throughout the community, we lost roads uh, in many different locations. Uh, clearly, the, uh, the northern village was um, uh, flooded, and uh, businesses and homes there uh, were particularly a hard hit. Um, so obviously that area, as everyone knows, but uh, really throughout the community, the roads were, were uh, hit pretty hard. Um, and the Cobble Ridge Road Bridge was uh, wiped out and a large culvert on Spring Hill Road. And so, as you can tell just from the description there, it's really throughout the town. Finally, we checked in with Scott Murphy, the town manager of Manchester. Manchester also saw some flooding on the eastern side of the town. I think um, having gone through this a little bit with uh, in the towns I was in previously, like Ludlow um, in uh, Wilmington, uh, that the state and FEMA uh, are definitely moving toward towns towards upgrading um, structures, uh, increasing uh, areas for improvement, and and also uh, making those FEMA property buyouts available and, and the state is very involved in that so I think you're asking me about a lesson learned I think they've learned the lesson um, but now the question is you know how far do you go with that uh, I know every time we get federal funding we usually have to upgrade the system to make it more flood resilient uh, if that means taking a 36 inch culvert and moving up to 48 then that's what it takes um, it, it generally costs the town a small amount at that point to do so if you have federal or state assistance. But uh, in other places where we don't have that assistance, uh, we're always looking to try to upgrade, knowing that these floods are going to occur more and more frequently. Building back from the recent weather events will be an ongoing process. On Thursday, August 3rd, the Vermont Emergency Management and FEMA the Federal Emergency Management Agency held a session for local municipal officials and nonprofits, which walked them through how to apply for financial assistance for their rebuilding needs. Kim Canarecci of the Vermont Emergency Management emphasized that there is FEMA public assistance available to certain applicants who have had eligible damages sustained from the July flood event. 
it's crucial that they apply soon and document as they make repairs. Funding is at 75% of federal share for eligible costs. And essentially, you should follow your own procurement policies, and you should also follow the federal one, whatever's more strict, all right? So if your town procurement policy is more strict than the federal one, you're required to follow We'd like it. to go from 36 to 42, you need to write to Kim and say, we want to do a little extra. So if it's, if it's $50,000 to put a 36 back in there, but you want to take it to a 42, and there's an additional $2,000 to upsize that, that would be the improved project. That would be your responsibility to cover that. But first, a letter to her saying that's what you intend to do. So again, that we capture that because we want to be able, once it goes in the system, we want to show that it, it originally was a 36, but you've elected to take it to a 42 at that little additional cost at your expense. <clears throat> so if we do have an unfortunate disaster again, it shows that you've already moved it to a 42, then you might have to take it to a 48 on the next one. But we want to make sure we document it. And during the briefing, she stated that every applicant should find at least one facility that was damaged in which they can look at improving and making more resilient from future events and challenged everyone to find at least one project. It would be surprising if there wasn't at least one of those in every town. For the GNAT TV News Project, I'm Andrew McKeever. The Dorset Village Library held its second annual Drag Queen Story Hour on Saturday, July 22nd, welcoming back Anita Cocktail, a drag performer from Brandon, Vermont, along with her friend Mama Dukes. The pair read stories and performed for over an hour for a full house inside the library, much to the enjoyment of their audience. The art form of drag has been around for a long time and has been traced back to ancient Athens, when women were prohibited from acting in theatrical productions and men performed those roles. My mom and dad have been best friends since first grade. They really like each other. It's kind of gross. <laughs> no, it's not. No, it's not. <laughs> There's a lot of kids in our family. Mom and dad just keep coming home with more. More recently, drag queens have been front and center on the culture wars of current years. So to learn more about the art form and what it's like to perform in drag, we chatted with Anita Cocktail, a.k.a. Tanya Durant, before she and her partner went on stage. I've been doing drag for six years. And how did you get started in it? I've always been interested in drag. I've always liked um, the transformation of it and the costumes and the makeup and the wigs and stuff. But I never thought being a... Um, biological female that I would be able to do it because I was always grown up to know that drag queens are men who dress as women and perform and um, and then I met my drag mother Lucy for Matrix um, six years ago who said why can't you do it you know drags for anybody you can do anything you want and you know stuff everything's opened up so much more so I'm like okay I want to try it and I tried it and I loved it and I love meeting all the new people and the new venues we go to and everything. So it was just like, okay, let's do it. So yeah, we're going to be reading books to um, children and adults. Um, last time we did it here last year, we had a mixture of adults and kids, which was great. And we just read books about acceptance and about being yourself and, you know, um, 
things like that. And then we are also going to do a couple performances, like do some lip sync numbers and sing, and we dance with the kids and things. And then afterwards, we usually do a craft with them and things. So that's what we typically do as far as the <coughs> story hour thing. And then we also do other performances in different venues and clubs. We've done all age shows where it's all just dancing and lip syncing to numbers and some people live sing. And then we also have our adult only theme that we do. But yeah, I love doing it for the kids and coming to the library like this and seeing the, the kids just light up seeing the different costumes because you never know what we're going to show up in. <laughs> So what do you make about all the controversy about drag performances that's going on this year at this point? I mean, it, I don't know. I just think it's nuts. It's like, you know, they got to have find something to complain about. I swear to God, you know, it's like this has been going on for centuries, you know, so everybody grew up with this kind of stuff on TV, you know, Bugs Bunny dressed in drag, you know, uh, Robin Williams as Mrs. Doubtfire. There's all these different ones that did. Three's Company, Jack the Ripper was, you know, Jack Ripper was supposedly pretending he was gay so he could live with two women and you know that were friends and stuff all of a sudden it's just you know we need something to complain about we need something that's not norm and i just think it's ridiculous let people be who they want to be we're not hurting anybody you know it's not a crime we're not hurting anybody we're out here living our true selves and you know especially the trans community and stuff they're being who they are you know they're not complaining because you're straight so why are you complaining because they're trans I just, I don't understand it. <laughs> Last year, the Dorset Library held two drag queen-themed events, the Children's Story Hour, and another one last September. Stephen Niles, one of the staff at the Dorset Library, coordinated the events and told us more about them. Um, I had always wanted to do a drag story hour, or host one, um, and the opportunity came up here to be able to have one. We got a generous grant from the Vermont uh, Humanities Council, and we were able to do both a drag story hour for the kids and a drag show for the adults in the fall. So it just kind of helped out and turned into a summer of inclusivity and more representation. So the idea was to kind of just expose more people to what it's about and mm -hmm. demythologize the whole thing? Yes. And uh, because, you know, Vermont is not as isolated as it, as it used to be. so you know, people need to expand their minds and meet new people. Yep, last it? year uh, we had over 60 people show up for the Drag Story Hour. I haven't counted how many people are here today. We had over 80 people show up for the Drag Show in uh, September. This year we're counting on equivalent numbers, if not more. Yep, the, we're having a drag and burlesque show the first, week, first Saturday in October, and that is for 16 and older because it does have the burlesque elements to it and uh, it's our Halloween kickoff. So it starts our full month of Halloween celebrations leading up to our haunted house at the end of the month on Halloween. Back in the reading room, the audience of all ages seemed to enjoy Anita Cocktails and Mama Duke's reading hour on Saturday. And Halloween isn't all that far away either. For the Junior TV News Project, I'm Andrew McKee. For the love of Vermont, an exhibit of more than 200 paintings and illustrations from the collection of Vermont country store owner Lyman Orton, made by about 65 20th century artists who depicted life in Vermont, had its second opening this month, this time at the Southern Vermont Arts Center in Manchester on Saturday, July 22nd. Part of the exhibit opened at the Bennington Museum on July 1st and included an opening reception on July 15th, 
were Mr. Orton and writer Anita Raphael, who co-authored a book that accompanies the exhibit, discuss the exhibit and the artwork. The exhibit at the Bennington Museum will be on display until November 5th. On Saturday, July 22nd, Lyman Orton, Anita Raphael, and Southern Vermont Arts Center Executive Director Ann Corso took to the stage at the Arkell Pavilion at the Arts Center to discuss the exhibit before a packed house to kick off the opening of the Arts Center's share of the exhibit, which features the work of artists such as Rockwell Kent, John Clymer, Churchill Ettinger, Paul Sample, Mead Schaefer, John Atherton, Marion Hughes, Luigi Lucioni, Kyra Markham, Bernadine Custer, Milton Avery, and others. The exhibit is housed at the Art Center's Yester House, where it will be on display also until November 5th. Following the opening reception at the Arkell Pavilion, the crowd headed over to the Yester House to take it all in. <laughs> A few days before, we had a chance to speak with Ann Corso, the Art Center's executive director, about the exhibit. Well, I think it will be interesting to our local community, but people from further afield who are enchanted with the idea of Vermont and love Vermont, because this exhibition is really sort of a love story with Vermont. Lyman Orton has collected um, artwork that was painted by Vermont artists or painted by artists who visited Vermont over decades. And he has painstakingly uh, collected this exhibition over the years. And it's a, it's a really wonderful testament to this kind of what we call golden era of Vermont painting. It's primarily focused on the 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, kind of that golden age of the regional art schools. Um, but there are many artists that sort of span and extend beyond those time periods. And what's really interesting about this collection as a whole is it depicts every aspect of Vermont and its people. Um, not just the glamorous side, but the true working spirit of Vermont. The sugaring, the skiing, the logging, the farming, all of the industries. And really, I think, gives people who are either local or visiting for the first time kind of a snapshot of what it's like to live in Vermont or what it was like to live in Vermont many years ago. To take in all the paintings and the Vermont experience they illustrate and capture from life in the state from an earlier period, plan to visit both the Bennington Museum and the Southern Vermont Arts Center. The exhibits will run until November 5th, and you can also find another segment we did earlier, which features conversations with Lyman Orton, Anita Raphael, Allison Kreitz, the curator of the Southern Vermont Arts Center, and Jamie Franklin, the curator at the Bennington Museum, on GNAT TV's website, gnat-tv.org, or on one of our channels. For the GNAT TV News Project, I'm Andrew McKeever. The town of Arlington is looking to track and survey its fossil fuel and energy use in conjunction with the town's Energy Committee, following up on a town meeting article voters approved earlier. The town is looking to hire someone to help build and maintain a computer spreadsheet that will track past energy use. 
The town's energy committee has been tracking the town's energy use and carbon sequestration from town forests and other strategies up to now. The Arlington Select Board at its last meeting on July 24th approved an RFP, or Request for Proposal, for hiring such a consultant and spreadsheet manager. That opinion has been built into this process from the very beginning. There's a reason that it's taken like 18 months to build a spreadsheet, um, and I've spent hours and hours and hours, and I have many, many hours right. to work right. on this yet. Right. Um, but do I, can I say that we have a spreadsheet that is a public record that I can send to you in my email that has this methodology and has this, what, do I, this paper, or this project is being done, and this is all in the minutes of the Energy Committee, that in such a way as we expect there to be academic papers that are going to be able to be written from the accounting in this paper. Okay, so I, I would be I would support doing this yes. if you think this would make the um, the information. I mean, he, this person is not gathering the information; they're processing it, presenting it, analyzing it. But to my mind, you know, it would be really good if we ended up with something that had other eyes look at it, had other eyes vet it. So it isn't just the energy committee saying. Yeah. This is what it is, because it can be the best spreadsheet in the world, and if it, it doesn't have good intellectual foundations, which I know is part of what you've been trying to provide, mm -hmm. I just think that that um, that I would really like to have some kind of outside review, independent review of what they come up There's with. There's a motion made by Cynthia and second by uh, Jamie to approve the Energy Study Labor RFP uh, as presented in the letter date July 25th. All those in favor signify by the same one. Aye. Any fixed spreadsheet? Oh, yeah. For more background on this, we spoke with town administrator Nick Zayas and Karen Lee, a member of the town's energy committee. So this carbon study is is a complete accounting of the town's carbon emissions to the greatest exactitude as we can glean from publicly available data and um, using properly vetted and generally accepted methodologies. So we, so the energy committee members have taken pains to go through the, um, all of the bills associated with all of the things that could be emitting carbon and any, any of the um, other pieces that need to be brought together to get a, an, a, an exact picture or a reasonably exact picture of what the town is emitting. That includes understanding how much fuel we're using in the park, how much fuel we're using for our plow trucks, what what is um, the emissions of the electricity usage that the town is town has. Um, what about big equipment and small equipment and making sure that every little piece of the government's uh, carbon footprint is fully accounted for. So at the end of this project, the the uh, committee will have a spreadsheet that shows with a reasonable degree of exactitude exactly how much carbon the town is committing to and what and and that can give us insights onto where the means of or where the areas of improvement are um, that the entire point of this was to help us understand where our carbon is coming from and find ways that we can lessen our, our climate impact and hopefully also save the taxpayers some money. 
So what prompted uh, the Energy Committee to ask for this study of uh, carbon usage in Arlington? In 2021, a small group of activists got together and put the question before the town and a gen at the town meeting, the annual town meeting, the populace uh, determined that they wanted the town operations to be carbon neutral by 2027 based on 2020 uh, carbon emissions level. So in order to achieve that goal, we needed to know first how many carbon dioxide molecules we were emitting um, and all the town operations. And uh, so we um, got together and have been doing lots of research and study and it's a slow process because we're volunteers, you know, so it, it has taken a while. The, the analysis uh, for 2020 was completed about a year ago, um, but we're expanding it to include um, the most recent years after that, so 21, 22, and next year, Y23. And also we're forecasting it into the future, which none of the other carbon models are doing. There are lots of other carbon footprint calculators out there. The EPA has one. Um, <clears throat> the uh, College of Middlebury students did an excellent one last year. So a lot of people are working on carbon footprint analyses, but ours is a little different because it's very detailed and we're looking at emissions from every source, every source that we can possibly think of. <clears throat> and we're getting down to the actual kilowatt hour and also we're studying very careful the actual impacts of all those types of sources of energy. Um, <clears throat> so it has been a very um, detailed process, a very interesting process, and part of that process and our, our spreadsheet that we're working on, we call it the spreadsheet, is um, we are coming up with formulas that will uh, help us estimate how much carbon emissions, how many carbon emissions we will have after we do certain um, offsets. The Vermont Council on Rural Development, a nonprofit dedicated to the support of locally defined progress of Vermont's rural communities, will be providing the funding for the project, which is estimated to cost around $1,500. The spreadsheet will enable yearly tracking of energy used and in a manner that's easy to execute by a volunteer energy committee or town resident. Some of the required editable input cells include fuel prices, amounts in cost, and amounts in energy use. It will also provide spaces for projections of energy savings based on known projection metrics. For the GNAT TV News Project, I'm Andrew McKeever. Bennington County is the first county in Vermont to be full of gig towns. That's gigs as in gigabytes of upload and download speeds from high-speed broadband internet, not gigs as in side jobs for extra money. Fidium Fiber, a brand of Consolidated Communications, and the Southern Vermont Communications Union District celebrated a milestone at Bromley Mountain in Peru on Tuesday, August 8th. Fourteen towns in the county now have the opportunity for linking in to high-speed fiber optic cable and for residents, regardless of whether they live on main roads or side roads, can now access up to 2 gigabytes per second of download and upload speed. 
Certain hard-to-reach addresses will take a little longer, and will have to wait until the lines and technicians reach them. But with the second of three phases of laying cable, now well underway across the Northshire and southern parts of the county, more than 99% of the county's residents can, if they want, get on the list for service. Representatives of the Southern Vermont Communications Union District, Fidium Fiber, and Senator Peter Welch were on hand to mark the occasion and describe its significance. Today's milestone is an important one relative to the lasting social and economic impact it will have for our region. Like in rural electrification, universal rural broadband will allow Bennington County and the CBD member towns to not only compete with cities in the U.S., but across the globe. Our area will have its natural beauty, a caring and talented uh, its natural beauty, a caring and talented community, and also the technology to provide the services and infrastructure for today and tomorrow's digital age requirements. Uh, this is a combination that few other places can offer. To quickly recap the CUD's progress, we formed in early 2021, entered a strategic partnership with Consolidated Communications, CCI, and in 2022, Consolidated completed phase one of our shared three-phase plan. Now, in 2023, together we will complete phase two, meaning our district will be about 99% covered high-speed broadband. In terms of solving rural broadband problems, this is truly lightning speed. They said it couldn't be done. <laughs> they didn't know, you know, southwestern Vermont. It really is pretty astonishing, and I'm just very excited to be here because we've been working on broadband, you know, forever. Pre-COVID, uh, when rural America was really being left behind, I remember when I started the Broadband Caucus, which ended up with about 20 Republicans and 20 Democrats, because when I went around Congress asking some of my colleagues from, you know, really red districts, how's your broadband? They'd go on a tirade, and I thought I was talking to folks, you know, from Londonderry, right? Or Windhall. And the fact was that when we banded together in an effort to get support in Congress, for the same high-speed internet that many urban areas enjoy, we were having an uphill battle to make that case. COVID came, and the case was over. I mean, all of us were in a situation where our kids couldn't go to school, where we couldn't go to work, where the only way we could get a medical appointment uh, was oftentimes on the internet and where the case was made. And what came out of that, of course, was extraordinary funding in the Inflation Reduction Act and the various broadband acts that we have been working hard to get fully funded. And $42 billion uh, in the infrastructure bill with about $230 million coming to Vermont. When, when I was brought on first by the Public Service Department and now the Vermont Community Broadband Board, what we were told to tell towns is no one is coming to save you for your connectivity issues. You have to save yourself. And that is what has happened all across the state, here in Bennington and across the other nine communication union districts. 216 of Vermont's 252 towns are now members of these districts. Each of these districts, each town, has two reps that have attended 
I don't even want to think about the hundreds of board meetings that you all have had to get to this point. And it's not all fun and games. Thankfully, I don't think there's been any blood, but there's certainly been sweat and tears and arguments and fiery, fiery debates. How pragmatic to be versus it's the symmetrical multi-gig speeds of our Fidium fiber um, is matched only by the speed at which consolidated can build and deploy services to our communities in Vermont. To deliver our Fidium Fiber internet service, Consolidated Communications built a multi-gig passive optical network to serve our communities in Southern Vermont, including over 2,400 previously unserved homes. By the numbers, this project entails placing 635 miles of fiber, which represents $21 million in investment in this community between the Southern Vermont CUD between the Vermont Community Broadband Board and Consolidated Communications. This all-fiber network will allow these 14 towns to grow and thrive in ways that you may not have imagined. With this new network, generations of residents can enjoy the beauty of this area without having to miss out on the myriad of opportunities that come with the best internet available. These communities will see new employment and economic opportunities Fiber attracts new businesses and helps businesses grow. Fiber increases real estate values, improves educational access, and opens up a world of new employment opportunities. Our partnership with the Southern Vermont CUD is an incredible example of how collaboration is the key to reaching universal service as quickly as possible. We're proud of your partner, and we look forward to continuing to build the future of broadband Right here Currently, there are nine communication union districts across the state hoping to bring high-speed broadband service to their towns. Such service will either complement what is already being offered by other internet service providers or go where such service has been limited because of the cost. An influx of federal dollars through several programs launched since the pandemic has helped make wiring up rural communities and side roads affordable where it wasn't before. What's really exciting to me is that when government is doing good things, it's building things that make a difference in communities. And then communities have the potential to come together and get stronger. So you had the partnership that I think is ideal. You had the federal government that has the resources, uh, sent the money back to the community. The community at the local level has much more skill about implementation and you had a lot of practical Vermonters getting together and they successfully implemented the bill out of broadband in these 14 communities. I mean, that's the way it should work, and it did. And, uh, you know, now a lot of folks who come uh, after uh, the people who've been pioneers are going to take for granted that we've always had high-speed internet uh, in these 14 towns. Uh, but the people here who did it, who did the work day in and day out, uh, have the satisfaction of knowing that they did something not only for themselves and their communities, but for future generations. Afterwards, we had a chance to speak with Christine Hulquist, the executive director of the newly established Vermont Community Broadband Board, to get her sense on how the progress towards the broadband build-out is going statewide. Yeah, I would say we're definitely on track. You know, we're actually in the second year, um, and... You know, the first year was organizing, organizing, getting the grants out, getting uh, the designs done, preparing for construction. You know, it takes a, a lot of work to design these networks. 
So we're in the place now where we've got uh, most of our CUDs in construction. We've And we've got grant applications from uh, all but one. And we expect another CUD to come in next month. So they'll all be in construction by this fall. And what you're seeing is, you know, things, construction is moving faster than we expected. So once we mobilize the crews, things happen fast. So Southern Vermont was a great example. You know, starting starting in one season, getting a whole CUD up to 100% connected to fiber is quite an awesome task because we've been talking about, you know, taking five years to get all of this done. So we're hopeful these early signs that things are going to happen faster than we expected. Now, I should say the Northeast Kingdom is is likely to be an exception because of the, you know, it's so that we're, we're trying to reach areas of densities where there's only two or three homes per mile. Um, but the rest of the state is going to go quite quick. Uh, now, now, I will also point out that Vermonters should appreciate just how important this is and our leadership. We're the only state in the in the United States that's committed to get fiber optic broadband to every address. Uh, so what what do you see as the biggest obstacles going forward at this point? Is it just uh, corralling the money to make that all happen? Or uh, is, the, is the financing in place pretty much to uh, continue uh, rolling out, you know, high-speed broadband? Yeah, we've, we've got the money to do it. The key now is the workforce, right? We're... This year, we're not having workforce problems, but we're anticipating workforce problems uh, starting next year because there's $42.5 billion being pumped into the federal economy to build these networks nationwide. So, you know, we're when we're scrambling for uh, workers, we're reaching out to the greater New England area, which includes New York State, because we're all competing for the same contractors. So as a result, you know, we're doing uh, some serious work on workforce development, developing apprentice programs, working. Uh, we're actually going to start delivering uh, training in a couple months on this. There's still a long way to go before reaching the goal of universal broadband, but in Bennington County, at least, that goal is much further along than many might have thought only a few years ago. For the GNAT TV News Project, I'm Andrew McKeever. And as a matter of full disclosure, I am a member of the Southern Vermont Communications Union District Board of Directors and represent the town of Sunderland. Thank you.